Chapter 14 The Meeting My beloved child, he resumed, was now growing rapidly worse. The physician who attended her had failed to produce the slightest impression on her disease, for such I then supposed it to be. He saw my alarm and suggested a consultation. I called in an abler physician from Graz. Several days elapsed before he arrived. He was a good and pious, as well as a learned man. Having seen my poor ward together, they withdrew to my library to confer and discuss. I, from the adjoining room, where I awaited their summons, heard these two gentlemen's voices raised in something sharper than a strictly philosophical discussion. I knocked at the door and entered. I found the old physician from Graz maintaining his theory. His rival was combating it with undisguised ridicule, accompanied with bursts of laughter. This unseemly manifestation subsided, and the altercation ended on my entrance. Sir, said my first physician, my learned brother seems to think that you want a conjurer and not a doctor. Pardon me, said the old physician from Graz, looking displeased. I shall state my own view of the case in my own way another time. I grieve, Monsieur le Général, that by my skill in science I can be of no use. Before I go, I shall do myself the honor to suggest something to you. He seemed thoughtful and sat down at a table and began to write. Profoundly disappointed, I made my bow, and as I turned to go, the other doctor pointed over his shoulder to his companion who was writing, and then, with a shrug, significantly touched his forehead. This consultation, then, left me precisely where I was. I walked out into the grounds, all but distracted. The doctor from Graz, in ten or fifteen minutes, overtook me. He apologized for having followed me, but said that he could not conscientiously take his leave without a few words more. He told me that he could not be mistaken. No natural disease exhibited the same symptoms, and that death was already very near. There remained, however, a day or possibly two of life. If the fatal seizure were at once arrested, with great care and skill, her strength might possibly return. But all hung now upon the confines of the irrevocable. One more assault might extinguish the last spark of vitality, which is, every moment, ready to die. And what is the nature of the seizure you speak of? I entreated. I have stated all fully in this note, which I place in your hands upon the distinct condition that you send for the nearest clergyman and open my letter in his presence and on no account read it till he is with you. You would despise it else, and it is a matter of life and death. Should the priest fail you, then, indeed, you may read it. He asked me, before taking his leave finally, whether I would wish to see a man curiously learned upon the very subject, which, after I had read his letter, would probably interest me above all others. And he urged me earnestly to invite him to visit him there, and so took his leave. The ecclesiastic was absent, and I read the letter by myself. 
At another time, or in another case, it might have excited my ridicule. But into what quackeries will not people rush for a last chance, where all accustomed means have failed, and the life of a beloved object is at stake? Nothing, you will say, could be more absurd than the learned man's letter. It was monstrous enough to have him consigned to a madhouse. He said that the patient was suffering from the visits of a vampire. The punctures which she described as having occurred near the throat were, he insisted, the insertion of those two long, thin, and sharp teeth, which, it is well known, are peculiar to vampires. And there could be no doubt, he added, as to the well-defined presence of the small livid mark, which all concurred, in describing as that induced by the demon's lips, and every symptom described by the sufferer was in exact conformity with those recorded in every case of a similar visitation. Being myself wholly skeptical as to the existence of any such portent as the vampire, the supernatural theory of the good doctor furnished, in my opinion, but another instance of learning and intelligence oddly associated with some one hallucination. I was so miserable, however, that rather than try nothing, I acted upon the instructions of the letter. I concealed myself in the dark dressing room that opened upon the patient's room, in which a candle was burning, and watched there till she was fast asleep. I stood at the door, peeping through the small crevice, my sword laid on the table beside me, as my directions prescribed, until... A little after one, I saw a large black object, very ill-defined, crawl, as it seemed to me, over the foot of the bed, and swiftly spread itself up to the poor girl's throat, where it swelled in a moment into a great, palpitating mass. For a few moments I had stood petrified. I now sprang forward with my sword in my hand. The black creature suddenly contracted towards the foot of the bed, glided over it, and standing on the floor about a yard below the foot of the bed, with a glare of skulking ferocity and horror fixed on me, I saw Malarca. Speculating I know not what, I struck at her instantly with my sword, but I saw her standing near the door, unscathed. Horrified, I pursued and struck again. She was gone, and my sword flew to shivers against the door. I can't describe to you all that passed on that horrible night. The whole house was upstirring. The specter Malarca was gone, but her victim was sinking fast, and before the morning dawned, she died. The old general was agitated. We did not speak to him. My father walked to some little distance and began reading the inscriptions on the tombstones. And thus occupied, he strolled into the door of a side chapel to prosecute his researches. The general leaned against the wall, dried his eyes, and sighed heavily. I was relieved on hearing the voices of Carmilla and Madame, who were at that moment approaching. The voices died away. In this solitude, having just listened to so strange a story, connected, as it was, with the great entitled dead, 
whose monuments were mouldering among the dust and ivy round us, and every incident of which bore so awfully upon my own mysterious case. In this haunted spot, darkened by the towering foliage that rose on every side, dense and high above its noiseless walls, a horror began to steal over me, and my heart sank as I thought that my friends were, after all, not about to enter and disturb this tryst and ominous scene. The old general's eyes were fixed on the ground as he leaned with his hand upon the basement of a shattered monument. Under a narrow arched doorway, surmounted by one of those demoniacal grotesques in which the cynical and ghastly fancy of old Gothic carving delights, I saw very gladly the beautiful face and figure of Carmilla enter the shadowy chapel. I was just about to rise and speak, and nodded smiling, in answer to her peculiarly engaging smile, when with a cry the old man by my side caught up the woodman's hatchet and started forward. On seeing him, a brutalized change came over her features. It was an instantaneous and horrible transformation as she made a crouching step backwards. Before I could utter a scream, he struck at her with all his force, but she dived under his blow and, unscathed, caught him in her tiny grasp by the wrist. He struggled for a moment to release his arm, but his hand opened. The axe fell to the ground, and the girl was gone. He staggered against the wall. His gray hair stood upon his head, and a moisture shone over his face, as if he were at the point of death. The frightful scene had passed in a moment. The first thing I recollect after is Madame standing before me and impatiently repeating again and again the question, Where is Mademoiselle Carmilla? I answered at length, I, I don't know. I can't tell. She went there and I pointed to the door through which Madame had just entered, only a minute or two since. But I have been standing there in the passage ever since Mademoiselle Carmilla entered, and she did not return. She then began to call Carmilla through every door and passage, and from the windows, but no answer came. She called herself Carmilla, asked the general, still agitated. Carmilla, yes, I answered. Aye, he said, that is Malarca. That is the same person who long ago was called Mercala, Countess Karnstein. Depart from this accursed ground, my poor child, as quickly as you can. Drive to the clergyman's house and stay there till we come. Be gone. May you never behold Carmilla more. You will not find her here. Chapter 15 Ordeal and Execution As he spoke, one of the strangest-looking men I ever beheld entered the chapel at the door through which Carmilla had made her entrance and her exit. He was tall, narrow-chested, stooping, with high shoulders, and dressed in black. His face was brown and dried in with deep furrows, he wore an oddly shaped hat with a broad leaf. His hair, long and grizzled, 
hung on his shoulders. He wore a pair of gold spectacles and walked slowly with an odd shambling gait, with his face sometimes turned up to the sky and sometimes bowed down towards the ground, seemed to wear a perpetual smile. His long, thin arms were swinging and his lank hands in old black gloves, ever so much too wide for them, waving and gesticulating in utter abstraction. The very man, exclaimed the general, advancing with manifest delight. My dear Baron, how happy I am to see you. I had no hope of meeting you so soon. He signed to my father, who had by this time returned, and leading the fantastic old gentleman, whom he called the Baron, to meet him. He introduced him formally, and they at once entered into earnest conversation. The stranger took a roll of paper from his pocket and spread it on the worn surface of a tomb that stood by. He had a pencil case in his fingers, with which he traced imaginary lines from point to point on the paper, which from there, often glancing from it, together at certain points of the building, I concluded to be a plan of the chapel. He accompanied what I may term his lecture with occasional readings from a dirty little book whose yellow leaves were closely written over. They sauntered together down the side aisle, opposite to the spot where I was standing, conversing as they went. Then they began measuring distances by paces, and finally they all stood together, facing a piece of the sidewall, which they began to examine with great minuteness. Pulling off the ivy that clung over it, and wrapping the plaster with the ends of their sticks, scraping here and knocking there. At length, they ascertained the existence of a broad marble tablet with letters carved in relief upon it. With the assistance of the woodman, who soon returned, a monumental inscription and carved escutcheon were disclosed. They proved to be those of the long-lost monument of Mercala, Countess of Karnstein. The old general, though not, I fear, given to the praying mood, raised his hands and eyes to heaven in mute thanksgiving for some moments. Tomorrow, I heard him say, the commissioner will be here and the inquisition will be held according to law. Then, turning to the old man with the gold spectacles, whom I have described, he shook him warmly by both hands and said, Baron, how can I thank you? How can we all thank you? You will have delivered this region from a plague that has scourged its inhabitants for more than a century. The horrible enemy, thank God, is at last tracked. My father led the stranger aside, and the general followed. I know that he had led them out of hearing, that he might relate my case, and I saw them glance often quickly at me as the discussion proceeded. My father came to me, kissed me again and again, and leading me from the chapel said, It is time to return, but before we go home, we must add to our party the good priest, who lives but a little way from this, and persuade him to accompany us to the Schloss. In this quest we were successful, and I was glad, being unspeakably fatigued when we reached home. 
but my satisfaction was changed to dismay on discovering that there were no tidings of Carmilla. Of the scene that had occurred in the ruined chapel, no explanation was offered to me, and it was clear that it was a secret which my father, for the present, determined to keep from me. The sinister absence of Carmilla made the remembrance of the scene more horrible to me. The arrangements for the night were singular. Two servants and Madame were to sit up in my room that night, and the ecclesiastic with my father kept watch in the adjoining dressing room. The priest had performed certain solemn rites that night, the purport of which I did not understand any more than I comprehended the reason of this extraordinary precaution taken for my safety during sleep. I saw all clearly a few days later. The disappearance of Carmilla was followed by the discontinuance of my nightly sufferings. You have heard, no doubt, of the appalling superstition that prevails in Upper and Lower Styria, in Moravia, Silesia, in Turkish Serbia, in Poland, even in Russia. The superstition, so we must call it, of the vampire. If human testimony, taken with every care and solemnity, judicially before commissions innumerable, each consisting of many members, all chosen for integrity and intelligence, and constituting reports more voluminous, perhaps, than exist upon any one other class of cases, is worth anything. It is difficult to deny, or even to doubt, the existence of such a phenomenon as the vampire. For my part, I have heard no theory by which to explain what I myself have witnessed and experienced, other than that supplied by the ancient and well-attested belief of the country. The next day the formal proceedings took place in the chapel of Karnstein. The grave of the Countess Mercala was opened, and the general and my father recognized each his perfidious and beautiful guest. In the face now disclosed to view, the features, though a hundred and fifty years had passed since her funeral, were tinted with the warmth of life. Her eyes were open. No cadaverous smell exhaled from the coffin. The two medical men, one officially present, the other on the part of the promoter of the inquiry, attested the marvelous fact that there was a faint but appreciable respiration and a corresponding action of the heart. The limbs were perfectly flexible, the flesh elastic, and the leaden coffin floated with blood, in which to a depth of seven inches the body lay immersed. Here, then, were all the admitted signs and proofs of vampirism. The body, therefore, in accordance with the ancient practice, was raised, and a sharp stake driven through the heart of the vampire, who uttered a piercing shriek at the moment, in all respects, such as might escape from a living person in the last agony. Then the head was struck off, and a torrent of blood flowed from the severed neck. The body and head was placed on a pile of wood and reduced to ashes, which were thrown upon the river and borne away. And that territory has never since been plagued by the visits of a vampire. My father has a copy of the report of the Imperial Commission, with the signatures of all who were present at these proceedings, 
attached in verification of the statement. It is from this official paper that I have summarized my account of this last shocking scene. Chapter 16. Conclusion. I write all this, you suppose, with composure, but far from it. I cannot think of it without agitation. Nothing but your earnest desire so repeatedly expressed could have induced me to sit down to a task that has unstrung my nerves for months to come and reintroduced a shadow of the unspeakable horror which years after my deliverance continued to make my days and nights dreadful and solitude insupportably terrific. Let me add a word or two about that quaint Baron Vordenberg, to whose curious lore we were indebted for the discovery of the Countess Mercala's grave. He had taken up his abode in Graz, where, living upon a mere pittance, which was all that remained to him of the once princely estates of his family in Upper Styria, he devoted himself to the minute and laborious investigation of the marvelously authenticated tradition of vampirism. He had at his fingers' ends all the great and little works upon the subject. Magia Postuma, Phlegon de Mirabilibus, Augustinus de Cura Promortuis, Philosophicae et Christiani Cogitationes de Vampiris, by John Christopher Herrenberg, and a thousand others, among which I remember only a few of those which he lent to my father. He had a voluminous digest of all the judicial cases, from which he had extracted a system of principles that appear to govern, some always and others occasionally only, the condition of the vampire. I may mention in passing that the deadly pallor attributed to that sort of revenance is a mere melodramatic fiction. They present in the grave, and when they show themselves in human society, the appearance of healthy life. When disclosed to light in their coffins, they exhibit all the symptoms that are enumerated as those which proved the vampire life of the long-dead Countess Karnstein. How they escape from their graves and return to them for certain hours every day, without displacing the clay or leaving any trace of disturbance in the state of the coffin or the cerements, has always been admitted to be utterly inexplicable. The amphibious existence of the vampire is sustained by daily renewed slumber in the grave. Its horrible lust for living blood supplies the vigor of its waking existence. The vampire is prone to be fascinated with an engrossing vehemence, resembling the passion of love by particular persons. In pursuit of these, it will exercise inexhaustible patience and stratagem, for access to a particular object may be obstructed in a hundred ways. It will never desist until it has satiated its passion and drained the very life of its coveted victim. But it will, in these cases, husband and protract its murderous enjoyment with the refinement of an epicure and heighten it by the gradual approaches of an artful courtship. In these cases, it seems to yearn for something like sympathy and consent. In ordinary ones, it goes direct to its object, overpowers with violence, and strangles and exhausts 
often at a single feast. The vampire is, apparently, subject in certain situations to special conditions. In the particular instance of which I have given you a relation, Mercala seemed to be limited to a name which, if not her real one, should at least reproduce without the omission or addition of a single letter those, as we say, anagrammatically, which compose it. Carmila did this, so did Malarca. My father related to the Baron Vordenberg, who remained with us for two or three weeks after the expulsion of Carmila, the story about the Moravian nobleman and the vampire at Karnstein Churchyard, and then he asked the Baron how he had discovered the exact position of the long-concealed tomb of the Countess Mercala. The Baron's grotesque features puckered up into a mysterious smile. He looked down, still smiling on his worn spectacle case, and fumbled with it. Then looking up, he said, I have many journals and other papers written by that remarkable man. The most curious among them is one treating of the visit of which you speak to Karnstein. The tradition, of course, discolors and distorts a little. He might have been termed a Moravian nobleman, for he had changed his abode to that territory and was, beside, a noble. But he was, in truth, a native of Upper Styria. It is enough to say that in very early youth he had been a passionate and favored lover of the beautiful Mercala, Countess Karnstein. Her early death plunged him into inconsolable grief. It is the nature of vampires to increase and multiply, but according to an ascertained and ghostly law. Assume at starting a territory perfectly free from that past. How does it begin, and how does it multiply itself? I will tell you. A person, more or less wicked, puts an end to himself. A suicide, under certain circumstances, becomes a vampire. That specter visits living people in their slumbers. They die, and almost invariably, in the grave, develop into vampires. This happened in the case of the beautiful Mercala, who was haunted by one of those demons. My ancestor, Vordenberg, whose title I still bear, soon discovered this, and in the course of the studies to which he devoted himself, learned a great deal more. Among other things, he concluded that suspicion of vampirism would probably fall, sooner or later, upon the dead countess, who in life had been his idol. He conceived a horror, be she what she might, of her remains being profaned by the outrage of a posthumous execution. He has left a curious paper to prove that the vampire, on its expulsion from its amphibious existence, is projected into a far more horrible life, and he resolved to save his once beloved Mercala from this. He adopted the stratagem of a journey here, a pretended removal of her remains, and a real obliteration of her monument. When age had stolen upon him, and from the veil of years, he looked back on the scenes he was leaving. He considered, in a different spirit, what he had done, and a horror took possession of him. He made the tracings and notes which have guided me to the very spot, 
and drew up a confession of the deception that he had practiced. If he had intended any further action in this matter, death prevented him, and the hands of a remote descendant has, too late for many, directed the pursuit to the lair of the beast. We talked a little more, and among other things he said was this. One sign of the vampire is the power of the hand. The slender hand of Mercala closed like a vice of steel on the general's wrist when he raised the hatchet to strike. But its power is not confined to its grasp. It leaves a numbness in the limb it seizes, which is slowly, if ever, recovered from. The following spring, my father took me a tour through Italy. We remained away for more than a year. It was long before the terror of recent events subsided, and to this hour, the image of Carmilla returns to memory with ambiguous alternations. Sometimes the playful, languid, beautiful girl. Sometimes the writhing fiend I saw in the ruined church. And often from a reverie I have started, fancying I heard the light step of Carmilla at the drawing room door. <laughs>